Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website, which is www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, you can simply post your question on our wall on Facebook, send us a tweet to at the Organic View, or contact me directly at June Stoyer on Twitter. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, one of the most trusted names in certified organic clean foods. Listeners of the Organic View Radio Show can receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. Simply enter the coupon code ORGVIEW when prompted during checkout. That's ORGVIEW. For more special offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. Today, my guest is Steve Lerner, and we're going to be talking about his book, Sacrifice Zones. Across the United States, thousands of people, most of them in low-income or minority communities, live next to heavy, polluting industrial sites. Many of them reach a point at which they say, enough is enough. After living for years with poisoned air and water, contaminated soil, and pollution-related health problems, they start to take action, organizing, speaking up, documenting the effects of pollution on their neighborhoods. In Sacrifice Zones, Steve Larner tells the stories of 12 communities from Brooklyn to Pensacola that rose up to fight the industries and military bases causing disproportionately high levels of chemical pollution. He calls these low-income neighborhoods Sacrifice Zones. And he argues that residents of these sacrifice zones tainted with chemical pollutants need additional regulatory protections. So I would like to welcome to the show Mr. Steve Lerner. Good afternoon, Mr. Lerner, and welcome to the show. Good afternoon, June. Thanks very much for inviting me to join you today. Mr. Lerner, can you please share with our audience a little bit about yourself and why you chose to write Sacrifice Zones? Certainly. I got my start as a journalist. I began after college writing for the Village Voice in New York City. In the mid-1970s, I joined with my brother, Michael Lerner, in starting a a non-profit out on the West Coast called Commonweal. That's C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. And it means for the common good in Old English. And I started a quarterly journal on environmental threats to public health, in which I looked at the way we were basically polluting our own nest through the misuse of toxic chemicals, the overuse of them, and the criminally negligent ways in which we were disposing of them. So I got my start writing articles and publishing articles on environmental threats to public health. This led me to look at radioactive wastes and their dumping in a number of locations. And it came to my attention that there was a a nuclear power plant being built south of of us in San Luis Obispo uh, that was named Diablo Canyon, Devil Canyon, and was sited on an earthquake fault. And this struck me as not a good idea, so I joined with a group of other people in the uh, early 1980s protesting the the 
construction of, of this power uh, nuclear power plant in what I felt was a, a vulnerable place. And I was subsequently arrested and imprisoned at the San Luis Obispo County Jail for this. And that led me to a number of years in which I wrote about prison reform. For about five years, I wrote about uh, the California Youth Authority prison system and then subsequently about adult facilities around the country and how they could be reformed, how the institutional environment could be reformed. But after that, I returned to my work on chemical pollution and ended up with a, an interest in those populations that were most highly exposed and most vulnerable, and those were the low-income, heavily minority communities. So I ended up writing these uh, two books, the first, Diamond, The Struggle for Environmental Justice in Louisiana's Chemical Corridor, which was about a, a small community 25 miles west of New Orleans on the banks of the Mississippi River that was sandwiched between a shell chemical and the shell oil refinery. And then the second book, Sacrifice Zones, which you mentioned where I look at a dozen case studies of um, people who were on the fence line with heavy industry. So briefly, that's how I got into this work, but it's it's all of the projects that I was involved with with Commonweal had a social justice component to it, and these last two books were about environmental justice. Thank you. As you began to do the research for the different locations, what were some of the common problems within each area that you observed? Well, usually it starts out with a group of residents who live next to a heavy industry or a military base where large volumes of toxic chemicals are handled, disposed of, or blown up into the air through smokestacks or let out into the soil and into the groundwater. And there's usually a precipitating incident that galvanizes um, a kind of grassroots environmental justice organizing in one of these communities. So uh, um, people are, are, are sitting around one day and they, they hear that, oh my goodness, there is uh, toxic chemicals in the groundwater. And I'll just, I'll just give one example of, of that kind of aha moment when local residents realize they have a significant problem. In Talavast, Florida, there were a group of uh, residents who were living next door to a Lockheed Martin um, weapons plant. One day in the 1970s, they learned that the trichloroethylene, a highly toxic chemical, had migrated from the uh, weapons plant into the groundwater. And there's a woman there, Laura Ward, who was, was sitting in her, her kitchen. Actually, this is uh, September morning in 2003. Uh, when she was looking out a window, she blew of hard hats drive up onto her lawn with a drilling rig and begin to drill a test well. 
And Laura Ward is not a shy woman. She ran down to confront the crew boss and said, you know, what the heck are you doing on my lawn? And he said, oh, we've been hired by Lockheed Martin to drill test wells around in the neighborhood to find out if pollution from their plant has gotten into the groundwater and contaminated the groundwater. And Laura Ward said that it was at that moment that she really felt the uh, earth move beneath her feet, and she began to look at her community um, through a new perspective, uh, because she and all of her neighbors were dependent on shallow wells, and they drew their water up out of this shallow aquifer into their kitchens and used it uh, to drink, uh, to cook with, uh, to make baby formula, uh, and so on. And she thought, well, if, if the water is has the, the high levels of this toxic chemical in it, then we've been drinking it and bathing in it for years. And so she began to think about uh, all of the uh, cases of cancer and other um, chronic and degenerative diseases in her neighborhood and wonder whether or not um, the high levels of disease in her neighborhood could have been caused by this toxic exposure. So if I were to pick one thing that typifies these uh, sacrifice zones or fence-line communities, it is this experience of uh, suddenly coming to the realization that um, you, that you and your neighbors are being disproportionately exposed to high levels of toxic chemicals that uh, cause um, disease and premature death. And that's the moment at which uh, people rise up and uh, organize. Now, Mr. Lerner, why is it that the low-income neighborhoods are specifically targeted? Is it that the industry feels that, well, you know what, these folks don't have a lot of money, uh, they're not going to have, they're not going to be yeah. able to fight back. Is it, is it just that reason, or are there other reasons? Well, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it can be one of two reasons, really. Um, uh, Low-income neighborhoods are, are attractive for the siting of um, uh, heavily polluting industries because residents in those communities tend not to be politically organized, and, and they don't have connections to powerful people that they could call up and, uh, and say, look, uh, we don't want this facility in our backyard. So that's one thing. Um, the, the other scenario um, is that in, uh, in areas around heavy industry, uh, real estate prices are depressed because basically uh, people who have a choice don't want to live next to a heavy industry. Uh, because of the pollution. Um, but because real estate values are depressed, it's cheap to move into these areas. And low-income people uh, often really don't have the choice. They have little disposable income. And so they rent a place or buy a place that they can afford, which happens to be next to uh, heavy industry. It is also the case that a lot of um, uh, 
public housing is located on the fence line with heavy industry. And it's very hard to get a berth in public housing. There are long waiting lists to get into public housing. So when you finally get into a place, um, you don't really, you're not in a good bargaining position to say, hey, I don't want to live here because it's too close to this factory or because the air is polluted or the water is polluted. You, your priority is, is putting a roof over yourself and your family. Um, so there are, there are various ways that you can end up on a, on a fence line uh, if, if you're uh, a low-income resident. But uh, I would say that a lot of these places Industry, heavy industry moves in because they think they can get uh, a permit and they won't face a politically organized opposition. And I'd like to take this moment to point out that there is an insidious form of zoning, uh, which is, is called mixed residential industrial zoning. And Usually that kind of zoning is, uh, only takes place in low-income communities that are not organized to go down and fight that designation. Because putting a residential community next to an industrial zone is a formula for creating environmentally induced disease and premature death that results from the residents being exposed to these high levels of, uh, of pollutants coming from the factories next door. Mr. Lerner, why aren't there buffer zones in between the residential areas and the industrial sites? That's, that's a wonderful question. I mean, uh, there should be um, a national requirement that all heavy industries have a buffer zone around them that allows the releases to become attenuated before they reach residential zones. Um, but there is no such law that exists. And I would suggest that the reason that it doesn't exist has to do with pol power politics. And that is that the heavy industries uh, lobbyists in Congress to make sure that no such regulation is ever written. Um, and they have deep pockets, and they can contribute to political campaigns uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Whereas the low-income residents in these places do not have money uh, to, to, to make political contributions. They do not have lobbyists in Congress. So uh, their interests are not represented in that way. And so they end up at the short end of the stick. Thank you. There's a term that you use quite often called toxic trespass. Can you explain what that means to our audience? Yeah, well, it's just it's a metaphor to suggest that um, what is going on here uh, in, um, I would judge, thousands of communities across the country that uh, are on the fence line with heavy industry is that these heavy industries are permitting their toxic chemicals to trespass into residential areas. And um, it's, 
illegal, frankly, uh, but the government is not doing a good job of regulating this or imposing sanctions on heavy industry when this occurs. So the typical uh, scenario is that a large industry has a permit to release a certain amount of toxic chemicals into the air and into the water. And in theory, that permit is supposed to ensure that people are, that residents are safe and that they won't be exposed to toxic chemicals. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that those regulations are often inadequate uh, and that they are often exceeded when industries have industrial accidents or upsets, as they call them, uh, and large clouds of toxic chemicals are released from their facilities. Uh, they have to report this, um, and sometimes they do report it, but very often it is not caught because there's no effective monitoring around their plants. Or if there is monitoring, often the people who own the monitors are the people who are, in fact, emitting the pollution. And they often ensure that those monitoring stations are not looking for the types of toxic chemicals that they're putting out, or they put the monitoring stations in the wrong place to catch the emissions. So there's a kind of a cat-and-mouse game going on, a deadly game, in which industries release these large amounts of toxic chemicals. Uh, and when they are caught by the government, um, they're given a slap on the wrist. Mr. Lerner, my next question for you is what kind of regulations are currently in place and do you think that the industry needs to uh, be more heavily regulated than what it currently is? Yes. Uh, the whole regulatory issue uh, really is a political issue. It's about power politics uh, and it's, it's about the fact that low-income residents have very little political power, and uh, the, the, the heavy industries that make large contributions to political campaigns have, have a lot of political power. But the fact is that for people who live next to toxic, uh, to, to heavily polluting industries, um, they're, uh, they're in a dangerous situation, which is unlike the situation of many more affluent Americans who live farther away from these hot spots of pollution. So if you live right next to a heavy industry, it's unlikely that the regulations are going to really protect you adequately. So we need uh, um, regulations that, that do protect people near, near these hot spots of pollution, um, and that will require organizing and political campaigns in order to uh, basically force uh, Congress to pass legislation that will protect these um, uh, residential populations that are in a perilous location. And to date, that has not happened. The, uh, the current state of affairs is that a lot of regulations surrounding uh, toxic chemicals are a patchwork of, of regulations that that vary from state to state, for one thing. And even the federal 
regulations, um, which apply across the country, are inadequate uh, in that they don't cover all of the toxic chemicals that industry releases. Um, and often the uh, amount of pollution that these companies are allowed to put out uh, should be stricter than they currently are. So the bottom line is that people who live next to heavy industries that put out a lot of pollution are not adequately protected by our regulatory structure. Thank you. When it comes to contamination, how can someone prove that their land has been contaminated, their water, or even the air is, is contaminated? Or, or their own bodies. Uh, that's, that's a great question because it cuts right to the heart of the problem here. And that is, industry depends on, uh, the, uh, from a, uh, a legal strategy, um, on the fact that it is very, very difficult to prove in a court of law that the release of a toxic chemical at point A, say in a refinery or a chemical plant, caused a health effect, uh, a, a disease or a premature death at point B. In, in a resident residence, um, you know, just across the fence line from where they're emitting the chemicals. Now, if you look at it from a, a common sense point of view, and you say, look, uh, uh, tons of this highly toxic chemical are released from this factory, and people living right next door are suffering health effects which, which are totally understandable um, and are, are congruent with the type of exposure that, that is taking place. Say a chemical causes a certain type of brain cancer, a certain type of neurological disorder, which is quite rare. And right next door in the residential community, you have a disproportionate number of this, these types of diseases occurring. Common sense would say that there's a cause and effect relationship here, that the release of the toxics from point A is causing a health effect right next door in point B. But when you go to a court of law, they don't accept that common sense um, uh, approach. They, they require that you prove scientifically that the release of the chemical in one place caused the health effect in the other place. And, and very often industries can say, well, you know, these people have respiratory disease or they have, you know, lung cancer or whatever. And they'll say, well, maybe they smoke too much or maybe they don't take care of their health or maybe they have a bad diet. And they use all these excuses. They basically blame the victim. And so we need to change the way these laws are written so that uh, it is not up to the, um, the people who are being harmed by these chemical releases to prove that they're being hurt, but rather it is up to industry to prove that it is not doing harm. In other words, shift the burden of proof. Um, because the, the situation we currently have is, both, is, is, is often racist and classist. 
it means that uh, low-income and heavily minority populations are ending up with disproportionately high um, rates of environmentally-induced disease and premature death. That's environmental racism. That's environmental classism. The same problems are not occurring further away from these factories among more affluent and more uh, white populations. So we really need to change the, uh, the laws and, and the burden of proof in order to protect these um, populations and sacrifice them. Thank you. Another question that I have for you is in regards to military bases, why are military bases of all places targets for environmental dumping? Well, um, there's a long history of the military basically feeling that it was not subject to uh, a lot of the environmental regulations that that uh, are in force elsewhere. And, and their rationale basically was what we're doing protecting the American people is too important. And sure, we deal with a lot of toxic chemicals in um, manufacturing weapons, in, in maintaining our, uh, our jet fighters and our uh, naval ships and our tanks and whatnot. And so, yes, um, there are releases of toxic chemicals that happen on military bases, but we have to have an exemption, basically, for this because we need a strong military to protect people of this nation from um, uh, foreign threats. Uh, so it's ironic, in a way, that the very um, force which is meant to protect us uh, from harm is, in some cases, actually causing harm. So our military, which should be protecting us, is, in fact, the source of disease um, in populations, in some populations adjacent to the military bases. And the reason for this is that they just... Uh, dispose of the toxic chemicals on site often in a way which is irresponsible and um, in some cases they just dig a hole in the ground and dump the toxic chemicals into the hole in the ground uh, and this happened at Kelly Air Force Base in Texas one of the sites I visited um, and the, the, the poisons got into the uh, groundwater uh, and they seeped out um, under under the fence line uh, into a low-income uh, Latin American uh, community uh, and and caused disease there uh, because, again, people were drawing the water up into their homes uh, and um, uh, people were getting exposed. So uh, gradually the, the, the military has been tr making efforts um, to do a better job of handling toxins. Uh, but they have a very long way to go. It's a sad fact that the U.S. military is 
uh, one of the greatest uh, polluters in the world. Um, and we really have to get a handle on this. Uh, our armed forces should be protecting us. They should not be causing harm. Thank you. Since you've written the book, how many more sacrifice zones have you discovered? Well, you know, um, I keep hearing about these places. Uh, I, I singled out a dozen um, case studies to look into in the Sacrifice Zones book. Uh, the geographic reach was from Florida to Alaska, from New York to California, from Texas to Ohio. Uh, and it wasn't hard coming up with um, places where this is happening. Um, if you do a search uh, either through, um, you know, newspapers and uh, various publications, or if you look at it from uh, some of the data that the Environmental Protection Agency collects, it's, it's easy to find where these facilities are that emit large volumes of toxic chemicals. And then all you have to do is look at the map and see what communities are next door uh, and and go begin to ask around about it. Um, the ones I focused on were um, examples in which there had been enough pollution, there had been enough medical problems in the residential community that grassroots environmental justice organizers had already begun a campaign, uh, and they had, you know, said enough is enough. We're gonna we're gonna make sure that uh, um, pollution from these plants are reduced, or that we are that 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 the industries pay to buy out our homes and allow us to move to safer ground. So I looked at more mature environmental justice campaigns than in many other places where people are suffering silently and have yet to organize uh, uh, enough of a, uh, a protest campaign uh, that it's gotten into the media and um, uh, kind of gotten onto the radar screen. So um, there are just many, many of these places. And, and that was the point of the book. The point of choosing 12 of these case studies was to show that there is a pattern of environmental injustice around the country and that this is happening on our watch. You know, this is a form of environmental racism and classism that is going on today. Uh, and it's, it's right in line with the kind of uh, civil rights the struggles which um, have have uh, a long history in this country, uh, and and uh, injustice um, is able to uh, uh, change its form from generation to generation. But in this generation, one of the forms of racism uh, is that we allow uh, minority communities to be disproportionately poisoned by emissions from toxic facilities. And um, our generation really is responsible for 
not only pointing this out, but doing something about it. So that, that was the point of the book, was to shine a light on this particular kind of injustice. Thank you. My last question for you is, how come the media hasn't covered this more thoroughly? I mean, some of the people that you wrote about, um, for the most part, it, it seems as though if you didn't take the time